Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White, and I've been looking forward to today's discussion. It's part of a pair of conversations we're going to have on this podcast about the Roberts Court and administrative law, where it's been recently, where it seems to be headed, both the individual cases, but also the big picture. And for this conversation, I'm so glad to be joined by two friends who really on this podcast need no introduction, but I'll I'll be brief. We're joined by Richard Epstein, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, where he also directs the Classical Liberal Institute, Uh, obviously a famous scholar of basically all aspects of law in every regard, including Roman law, but also more recently an author of a book on the state of administrative law. Richard, welcome to the podcast. It's great there. And yes, Roman law is my favorite subject. Yeah. And uh, I'll just note, uh, Richard and I, uh, for years, had a podcast together at the Hoover Institution. Uh, so this is sort of getting the band back together. Um, and joining the band in this episode is another friend, Allison Ho. Allison is a partner at Gibson Dunn uh, in the Dallas office. She co-chairs the firm's appellate and constitutional law practice group. And she litigates exactly the kinds of cases we're discussing today. She argued before the Supreme Court in two cases that may come up, um, the oil states case, which I know Richard definitely wants to talk about. And a few years earlier, she argued the case of Perez versus mortgage bankers, one of the early cases really thinking through anew uh, the way in which the court handles the administrative process and these deep questions of interpretation. So, Allie, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here with both of you. Ali, maybe we'll start with you. And big, big picture, what's your sense of the Roberts Court on administrative law? These last few cases and the cases that are on the docket may come on the docket. Where does the court seem to be headed with all of this? Yeah, that's, that's sort of the question of the day, Adam. And, and I think it, by any metric, uh, the term that's coming up, um, is shaping up as it could it could be, um, and I certainly hope it will be, um, speaking for myself, a blockbuster term uh, on administrative law cases. And you know, I think one one trend uh, that those of us who have sort of been uh, in the trenches uh, in the war against the administrative state, if you will, for a while, um, have I think been frustrated by a little bit. Um, is sort of you, you feel like litigants, individuals. I mean, I think of you know Michelle Cochran, who devote years and years of their lives to doing battle with their regulator. Um, in Michelle's case, the the SEC. Um, years and years go by, and so often at the end of the day, even if you win um, and you get a declaration that. Uh, the separation of powers have been violated, that an agency has exceeded its statutory or constitutional bounds. Um, the, the remedy seems to leave a bit um, to be desired. Sometimes it's just mm-hmm. a do-over um, with a properly constituted uh, adjudicatory body within the agency of, of what have you. I, I used to joke that, you remember those old t-shirts that used to say, you know, my parents went to Vegas and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there should be, should be a shirt for, you know, I litigated and won a major uh, separation of powers administrative law case. And, you know, all I got <laughs> at the end of the day was this lousy, was this lousy t-shirt. So I think. All I got was this lousy uh, vacator and remand. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, exactly. And so I think one of the things that court watchers who are particularly interested in this area will be having a chance to see this term in particular with some of the cases um, kind of give the court sort of a sliding scale, right? There's there's a way to kind of continue sort of nibbling around the edges of the administrative state, but there's there's also some opportunities to swing uh, swing for the fences in some cases. And so we'll be, we'll be watching those cases. Great, Richard, opening up big picture thoughts. I'd like to elaborate a little bit on what Allison said. Um, uh, the situations he was talking about in Lucia or whatever it was, was an appointments cause violation. Well, the way you fix that is you take the same judge who should never have been appointed in the first place and get the right guy in the agency to satisfy it, and you do that for 100 separate petitions. So you're back to square one. Uh, there's a real tension here that I think they have to face. Uh, they could try this on separation of powers, or they could try it on due process. And the Jacozzi case is one of the cases that's coming up this year. 
And I thought it should have been an easy due process case. Nemo, Udex, and Kansas, sue us Roman lawyers like to say, nobody should be a judge in his or her own court. And what happened is Judge Elrod down below put it in a footnote. She says, I'm not talking about this. And then when she raises a bunch of separation of powers arguments, uh, and some of them are good, some of them are bad, some of them are truly awful. And so you, what you do is you raise separation of powers argument. Uh, the prejudice issue is never going to be front and center. And so the strength of the precedent in the particular case may be much weaker than otherwise. So what I want the, the Roberts Court to do is to sort of look for generalizations that are durable, which is, I think, what Allison was hinting at when she said a remark. Uh, so to give you but one point, the idea that somehow or other prosecutorial discretion under a statute is basically an illegal delegation of powers is just way too far over the bunch. I mean, in fact, uh, you can't run a system without prosecutorial discretion. The appropriate check against it is in an individual case. You try to get the, this case dismissed for abuse or remanded or appointment of another judge. It's pretty messy. Uh, but if you insist that every time the, uh, the prosecutor decides to prosecute, you've got to go to court to show that he was legitimate, the system closes down. On the other hand, is it a jury trial or not a jury trial? That's a real mess because uh, if you're talking about injunctive relief, it's not a jury trial. If you're talking about damages, it is. Uh, so often the uh, SEC seeks both remedies, as it does in a case like Jarkozy. Is it or isn't it going to be something that the administrative state has to respect? Namely, when you switch the form for a common law issue on damages, you have to give the same protection that you had if you were in a common law court. Oil states, one of my least favorite cases, kind of suggests that's not going to be the situation, which I think would be very, very kind of worrisome. And so if you did the due process stuff, it's much more durable. Um, you can't do this kind of stuff. You can't cure it by an appointment situation. What you have to do is to make sure that the appointments of the judges is going to be out of it. I am a fan, actually, of the so-called unconstitutional constitutional courts under Article One, uh, because what they do is they give you independence with term limits, and it avoids, I think, the real problem of having an agency where they could pick their own prosecutors and not follow an independent system of rotation, which is the kind of thing that you still have in an Article One court. So I think what they have to do is they have to up their game on this particular stuff and realize that they're trying to make doctrine for the ages, not trying to solve a particular puzzle, which will not solve any puzzle that comes afterwards. Well, making doctrine for the ages sounds like a, a pretty steep challenge. <laughs> I'll just say it's especially hard when the justices, one of the things that makes their cases so interesting right now is they really seem to be grappling with what exactly it is they're looking at in these cases. Um, in, yeah. in, in Jarkizi, um, or Jarkasi, I still don't know. I guess we'll all find out how to pronounce that. <laughs> Jarkasi, I'm looking forward to those oral arguments just to get a sense of the justices' own sense of what they think they're looking at. Is this some kind of executive power? Is this some kind of quasi-judicial powers that used to be said? A lot just hangs on those initial instincts. I think back to the recent decisions involving, um, well, the, the earlier case involving the CFPB, CELA law, and then the follow-up case involving the FHFA. And in those cases, the justices would, would warn that, that, it's, that as long as an agency is exercising executive power, it has to have that kind of accountability. Um, it sent us thinking both backwards and forwards, thinking back to the FTC and Humphrey's executor. What kind of power was it? Was that agency actually exercising? What kind of power is that agency exercising now? It was a quasi-power. It was quasi, yeah, it was a quasi-judicial power, famously. It was quasi-executive and quasi-legislative. Yeah, and, and it was, in fact, judicial. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there is the constant question as to whether or not commissions, which are not part of Article Three to be introduced to the federal government, when in fact for workman's compensation and things like the FCC and the FTC, every state uses exactly that mechanism. And Crowell and Benson and sort of gave you a very clever lawyer solution to the problem by uh, Chief Justice Hughes at the time, saying so long as there's jurisdictional override, it's there. But I mean, Allison already spoke to this in Cochrane, I'm she's gonna to speak to it again. You bring a jurisdictional challenge after the agency rules against you, what good does it do? And, and so, I mean, are you in agreement on this, Allison? I'm just curious as to how you think about it. Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still sort of thinking about your point earlier about separation of powers versus due process, and it sort of reminds me of of a very different area of the law where you had kind of 
I'm thinking about um, First Amendment right and free exercise issues, right? Where in the wake in the wake of Employment Division versus Smith, right? I mean, it's kind of all of the all of these issues, which really are free exercise issues, get litigated as free speech issues because that's the you know that's the open path, that's the path to victory, um, and it's 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 really. I think you make a very important point in terms of if what we want is durability. Um, you know, are we are we sort of barking up 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 the wrong tree? And I guess when I think of the administrative state and the rise of the administrative state and, and all of that, I, I tend to think of it sort of as a problem of, you know, Congress increasingly, you know, Congress is supposed to um legislate. It's supposed to you know, schoolhouse rock. It's supposed to make laws and the executive is supposed to enforce the laws. And then the judiciary is supposed to say what those laws are. And so when you get in a situation, as I believe we are right now, where Congress increasingly passes, you know, very vague, open-ended statutes rather than grapple with some of these difficult issues and essentially punts to agencies to figure it out, you do you do sort of get this kind of unholy alliance of the regulator and the prosecutor and the quasi, I have to use that word, I can't be the only one on this podcast that doesn't use it, right? Lawmaking power that we now have in, uh, in administrative agencies, it does become, um, to, to quote uh, the late great Justice Scalia, who actually wielded the phrase against his friend, Justice Thomas, a liberty-destroying cocktail, um, right? And that's why, to me, if, if I can just introduce sort of a topic, I think, from last term and that, that has court watchers talking and thinking and not always in the same direction about, and that's the major questions yeah. doctrine, yeah. right? And, and from my perspective, it's sort of interesting that it's become sort of a lightning rod because to me, the major questions doctrine is just sort of another iteration in a long line of venerable clear statement rules, right? Or, you know, Congress wow. doesn't hide elephants um, in, in, mouse holes. In, in mouse holes, right? Um, and so when, especially when you're looking at separation of powers, which is a structural issue, um, you know, I, to me, the, the major questions doctrine just comes along and says, look, when we're reading the text, when we're reading the statute, we're trying to figure out what it says. Um, one of the rules that we apply as textualists um, is, you know, we we would not we would not expect Congress to do big things and little out of the way statutes. And our our separation of powers, our structural constitutionalism tells us that not only should it, it you know, it doesn't, it shouldn't be. Yeah, look, I agree with that. Let me go back, because you, you raised it, and it was an interesting transition, started with talking about the Smith employment case, and then I get to major comments. Now, Smith was supposed to be a case about free speech and religion, uh, and it turned out Justice Scalia badly muffed the whole thing, uh, because what happened is there was a relatively stable consensus around the accommodation doctrine, and he thought the neutrality doctrine worked better. And then you get into all of these horrible type situations, forcing people into the military and then requiring them to eat pork if it turns out they're either Muslim or Jewish on this kind of thing. And there was nobody but nobody who thought he was right on this. Well, you can't overdo the decision, so you press RIFRA. Well, it turns out RIFRA is a part solution, uh, but you can't, you could do it with federal stuff, but it doesn't apply to state stuff. So then you have to pass it again in a different form, at which point they cheat and they allow it to go. And then, of course, what happens is the ACLU realizes, hey, this might actually protect businesses against various kinds of ridiculous behavior. So we're bailing out, we're not dealing with this. The last, first lesson you learn about this, you pass a really stinkeroo decision. There's no easy way to reverse it and to pretend that the world is as it never was. And that's one of the great challenges of constitutional law. Hard enough to get things right when you're writing on a blank slate. Much harder to do it when you're dealing with a series of decisions because you just essentially got it wrong. So then Allison shifted. I'm going to shift with her, right? Uh, you get cases, okay, it's in the administrative law. Now we're talking about the major questions document. Um, it's pretty uniform that everybody on the left uh, in this country seems to think it's a tragedy of one kind or another. And there are a fair number of people in the middle on the right who actually agree. I have a very different view of this, and I think it's closer to Allison. My view is that. Uh, the major questions doctrine is an effort to offset the danger associated with the Chevron doctrine. Mm. 
And the correct way to understand Chevron, if you read the statute, is all questions of law de novo in an appellate court. And there's no deference to anybody on anything, whether it's big or small. Well, on the small questions, you might not matter, but on the big ones, you do. And in West Virginia, you can't play the game that they wanted to play to restructure the economy on energy by a bunch of fools, I might add. Um, in these circumstances, by pointing to a section uh, that allows for certain modifications to take place, which is never even used in this way. And so the correct answer is they should go the whole way. And Loper, of course, I think gives them that kind of opportunity uh, to re-examine the thing from its roots. And the radical nature of the position is administrative agencies have no special expertise on questions of law. Their expertise on matter of fact. And so what happens is we don't defer to them on facts at the state farm in many cases. Uh, and we uh, basically defer to them on law. So we have a great administrative state, which I think has it exactly backwards. Allison, you agree? Yes, I do agree. And it, it, it it's almost like we've gotten ourselves in a situation where every, every year that goes by without a course correction, right, of the expansion of the administrative state, that it becomes harder and harder right, to execute that course correction because even, even modest steps toward that and toward restoring separation of powers or due process, um, however you want to frame it, um, become harder and harder to do. And, mm -hmm. and as we think about the jarcacy, now I'm very self-conscious about how I'm saying it, um, but the, the, the jarcacy case, it's really fascinating, right? Because it gives, it offers up to the court sort of three, three distinct options, um, three distinct grounds to to rule on. Um, I think it's it's sort of an interesting conversation as to which is um, which one would have the least impact and which would have uh, the most the most impact. Um, but then, you know, we saw. I don't know if you've seen re the reports from yesterday's argument, right? Yes. In the the um, CFPB case, a lot of the headlines focused on um, Justice Thomas's uh, question about, well, if even you know if this this is unprecedented, it's never um, been been done before. Um, you know, what's this doesn't mean it's unconstitutional. I mean, I I'm always leery about kind of reports in the immediate wake of oral argument, understanding that sometimes uh, judges oftentimes ask questions to elicit uh, responses or just test arguments um, without expressing sort of their view one way or the other. But I think, I think to me, what's going to be really interesting about this term is not just who's going to win and who's going to lose, um, but, you know, how big, how big the Delta is on either side of that in terms of what the, what the ultimate outcome or the result of the case Ends up being. Um, we are going to we're going to circle back to CFPB, but since you, you both brought up major questions, Doctrine and Chevron, let's just talk about that for a moment um, because okay. it's important. Um, we'll start with major with major questions, Doctrine, and then we'll back into Loper Bright and Chevron. Okay. Um, there's, as you said, Richard, there are critics of the major questions doctrine among both conservatives and progressives, and there's any number of criticisms. Um, and I'm sympath I, I quite like the major questions doctrine actually, but I think the the criticisms that are most salient are that it's it's anti-textualist, that actually it's it's bad textualism on its own terms. It's not the major questions doctrine is not a search for the original meaning of a statute's text as evidence of the mm -hmm. intent of Congress, but rather it's the judges imposing their own value judgments on how we interpret statutes. Now, that's a criticism that goes carries well beyond the major questions doctrine. It goes to any of the so-called substantive canons, right? It it would that, that criticism, I think, would also be a critic, yeah. criticism of the rule of lenity, right, in criminal law. But it's but it is, I think, a, a somewhat potent criticism. What do you what do you make well, of the major questions doctrine's connection to textualism? Well, I think the answer is, if you take the view that I do, that the a relevant text is section, what is it, 306 of the Administrative Procedure Act. 706. All, yeah. 706, rather. It gives all questions of law to the court. What's happened is the major questions doctrine is a halfway house getting back to that position. Uh, the correct way to say it is that we do these things as questions of law. And at that point, the technique that we follow, whether it be originalism or purposivism or some combination between the two of them, what you're asking the court to do is to resolve it as a de novo issue 
and you're not committing them to one form of interpretation after another. Uh, what happens is when you call the major questions doctrine, what you then have to do is to figure out how big it is before you could decide it. And so you get a borderline question, which seems to be somewhat unprincipled. And then you're kind of saying that we have two lines of interpretation, one for the major question and one for the other. I think you expose yourself to all those difficulties, which is why it is I don't like half measures. It seems to me, let's go back to the point I said at the beginning, if it's a due process violation, treat it as such and get resolved the problem. If it turns out it's a question of statutory interpretation, the basic rule is uh, that courts are better at statutory interpretation than administrative, and therefore you follow Chevron as it was originally designed. And so I don't think there's much more to it than that, and I think all of these devices are not written by people who say, we want to go back to Chevron. They're written by people who say they like the status quo, which I think is completely unprincipled. Yeah. Ali, what's your sense of the connection between uh, major questions and textualism? Yeah, and I and and look, I like Richard, I, I tend to come down on the side of those who defend the major questions doctrine. Um, I think those of our fellow travelers who express concern about textualism. It's you know, iron sharpens iron, right? So it's I think it's it's always or especially as important in areas like is like this to keep ourselves uh, honest and to be sure that when when faced uh, with with concerns about textualism, um, you know, to me this is actually within kind of a larger debate about textualism itself, yeah. right? And and what it is and what it isn't. Right, textualism is not literalism. You know, one of the rules of how do you interpret a statute? Um, you don't do you know a provision in a statute. You don't do that in isolation, right? You look at the provision um, within its 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 context. And we we wouldn't say it's anti-textualist to do that. I think what we would say is you do need to be careful, right? You need to keep yourself honest when you're doing that, and you don't you don't allow those uh, interpretive tools to smuggle in judicial policy making or no. or preferences um but to me that's a separate issue from you know is it anti-textualist mm -hmm. i think that sort of misses the mark and i richard i'm intrigued by your what you were talking about is you know we have a lot of doctrines and rules that essentially are workarounds and you know it really reminds me and you brought up the mortgage bankers case yes that i that i argued and you know, people, you know, today people see that as a case, um, and I'm thrilled that people see it as a case kind of where you have all the concurrences talking about, you know, the problems with the rise of the administrative state and, yeah, and, and for the court to take us on. But but if you think about how that case got started, what the origin of it was, is it involved a doctrine um, uh, called under a case called paralyzed veterans. I sometimes yes. think I would have had a better shot at defending that doctrine um, if it had had a different, a different name. name. Yes. Yeah, but it, anyway, it was a doctrine that, in my view, the D.C. Circuit had developed as essentially a workaround to our right to our deference. And what I found so interesting in that case is in the you know by that time decades. Um, that the doctrine um, had been had been um, placed, and not just in the D.C. Circuit, but the Fifth Circuit, other circuits um, had deployed the doctrine. Um, the criticism of it was that it had no, you know, it had no roots in in the APA. Um, in that respect, I guess it's like Chevron too, right? That, that yep. doesn't doesn't cite yeah. or quote it, but um, not a voice of complaint from either, you know, a, a judge of any ideology or from either side. Because I just I thought it was it was sort of there. It was just a workaround. They used it very rarely, but I I kind of saw the doctrine as mm -hmm. you know it had grown up. It was was something that sort of helped the court work around um, our with some of the most egregious instances where agencies would interpret their own um, rules yeah. in a complete yeah. opposite um, fashion. Um, so I I think. You know that, and that that probably will bring us um, right to the discussion of Chevron, right? Will we will yeah. we see sort of overruling, or will we see what we saw in Kaiser versus Wilkie, right? When our deference that yeah. everybody thought, right, that was sort of the one prediction on all of the like Supreme Court preview rounds yeah. that all everybody felt completely comfortable saying, oh yes. The court is going to overrule our it only it only granted cert on that question. 
Um, and and instead, we we did not get that. We got a decision, you know, I think cutting it back a little, but certainly not overruling it. Yeah, look, our is the second one of Justice Scalia's opinion, which he came to to regret. Uh, but it's really important to understand what the technique was and so forth. And I'm going to relate an anecdote. Uh, one of the noted sort of constitutional skeptics about everything is is um, Adrian Vermeule. And he gave a presentation with Cass Sunday defending Aura. And the argument was, I want to figure out how police departments work. That is, it was a commitment to ignorance about how agencies work in deciding how they should be governed. So what I did is I responded. I said, look, I just took a random manual of the police force and to see how they define patrolmen, sergeants, and commanders. And it's perfectly clear that the definition of even a sergeant fits perfectly into the definition of an executive under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And it's a simple interpretation question if you actually try to find it out. And then you start looking at the command structures. And by God, this guy does have executive authority. Uh, He's a non-commissioned officer in the Army. And the great problem structurally about uh, the Fair Labor Standards Exactly. It just seems to say that they're just two classes of people, they're employees and employers, uh, whereas complicated administrative structures don't map very well. But you have to do that. And at this point, the case becomes easy the other way. What Justice Scalia did is he says, well, you can dock workers and you can fire uh, supervisory officers. And he treats a $10 reduction in pay for the week for bad materials as though it were dismissal for misconduct. A complete misapprehension of how these statutes start to work. And so I'm going to put another plea in this, which is my view about the Supreme Court, and I mean this to be somewhat harsh, somewhat harsh, is I don't think they pay enough attention to the institutional arrangements that they're about to examine to understand how they were put together, why they were put together, why they succeed or why they fail. And that's exactly what happened with respect to our and the banking case that Allison did. I think there was a greater awareness of what was going to go on with loan officers than it was earlier on. And so let's just hope that they do that. Sackett's another classic case that they decided where they had no idea of what the optimal structure of water law is when you issue dredge and fill permits and why it matters. And so getting the law wrong, they got the case wrong again and again and again. It's very important. You keep laughing about Roman law. Everybody laughs about my Roman law. You know Roman law. You know Roman law. To war. You're never going to make decisions like the ones that we make in the current Supreme Court on water law. One of the areas where they're absolutely at their, their worst in trying to figure out what's going on. One more question on Chevron, a big picture, and this goes to Al, Ali's point that we don't actually know what's going to happen in Loper Bright, just as we didn't know what was necessarily what's going to happen in Kaiser versus Wilkie. But my, my question, very broad, but two parts. One is, uh, do you expect the court to overturn Chevron? And what do we expect it if, to replace it with, if anything? And my little editorial comment to the end of this is, Scalia's case for Chevron and his famous Duke Law Journal article is that when we're living in an era of broad delegations, there's, it's inevitable that you're going to have, to have something like Chevron deference. Kristen Hickman made a similar argument in a recent article. But the point goes deeper than that. James Madison wrote at the very beginning of it all in Federalist 37, you can't get rid of all vagueness in law. You can minimize it, but there's written language is inherently limited, and there's always going to be some vagueness. So no matter what the court decides, it's going to leave judges with the question of how to decide cases when there's a lot or a little vagueness in regulatory statutes. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around what, what the post-Chevron future might actually look like. That, that, went, that question went on way too long. But Ali, I'll, I'll let you go first. Um, what, what's going to happen and then what next? Sure. Um, so, you know, if you uh, past performances, what is it? Past performance is no guarantee of, of future results. And of course, one of the really interesting things about about Kaiser versus Wilkie, right, which um, uh, Appel did not did not overrule our deference. Um, and the chief justice wrote a concurrence saying no one should construe what we do today as essentially deciding the fate um, of Chevron. Um, which was sort of interesting. I, I always kind of thought of, you know, our sort of JV, um, <laughs> right? Or Chevron yeah. diversity. And you kind of yeah. think, well, if, if you're not, if you're not going to overrule, you know, the JV, then kind of what hope is there for Chevron? And I, um, my instinct is watching the, is, is I think we are probably poised to see another decision 
along those lines um, with sort of counting against that for me is just as a practical matter, I think litigants and certainly the government um, has really been leery, I think, about asserting um, Chevron for fear of putting it in, in the crosshairs. And, you know, the court often will take steps like overruling past precedent. It, it, it's almost like the, the less you need it to be overruled, right, the more likely the court is. Um, to do that. So maybe that's, that's mm-hmm. or, or maybe, you know, to get back to my um, uh, comparison with uh, free speech and free exercise cases, you know, maybe years from now, we'll get, we'll get an opinion saying, why are you guys talking about Chevron? We overruled that. We overruled that case, you know, years ago. Sub yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jen, Ma- our co-director, Jen Mascott, she had a, when she reviewed Tom Merrill's book on Chevron deference recently, mm-hmm. She said Chevron seems to be coming the uh, the new lemon test where nobody yes. actually wants oh, to invoke it. And then what happens? I think it was in the, the recent Fulton decision out of Philadelphia where the court says, "Oh, lemon's been abandoned." Yeah. Um, and that's, <laughs> that is kind of what it feels like with Chevron. But Ali, um, yeah. I'd also add Justice uh, uh, Barrett's concurrence on major questions doctrine is very well timed in the sense that with Lo- with you're, you're discussing with Loper Bright, if it is some kind of reformulation of Chevron, some recalibration, um, or an overturning. It's it, it, Justice Barrett's sort of sense of the major questions doctrine itself is surely going to feed into the court's general sense of what Chevron is to begin with. Yes, yeah. I think I think that's right. And before you jump in, just a, just a very broad general point that we talk about the court, right, and the nine on it. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge there's been more change in personnel in this court than, I mean, when I clerked 20, about 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. um, that court had been together longer than any other court in, you know, modern history. Mm -hmm. And in the 20 years since then, um, only one justice who was on the court when I clerked remains and that's that's justice thomas and it, it's often said that every time a new justice joins the court it's a new court so th- think about that in terms of mm-hmm. you know from an institutional perspective um that amount of change in two decades which may you know that may seem like a long span of time i think from the perspective of the court as an institution it's it's actually a lot of it. So I, I think what we're also seeing is a court tackle tackling issues, um, you know, where they're they're coming to it, and and it's and it's it's not like when 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 I clerked or even when I was arguing the court that I argued, um, you know, mortgage bankers before, right? Where those a lot of those justices were already on record on some of these issues and had thought through them, and it could come across them in case after case. Um, and so I think that's that's just another factor that kind of comes into play when we're thinking about a court being asked to make big moves i yeah i I want to take issue with adam um on the on the nature of language i i certainly agree that there are always hard cases and one of the common expressions that you have as an english trained common lawyer is yes there is twilight and dawn but there's also day and night Mm -hmm. you don't want to argue that the things at the margin dominate the overall analysis and so if i'm going to ask of what's going on let me give you a case where i just think it's just crazy to think that there's any discretion or ambiguity in the language now take the commerce clause this clause has never ever meant to be covering manufacture everybody knew it at the time uh what happens is of course the clause changes if you get telecommunications across state lines it's going to be a federal issue trains buses airplanes whatever it is uh, but your local taxi service that gets you to the airport is no different from the local horse and buggy that got you to the train station 150 years ago. So the change circumstance argument is often overrated. The other cases that we talk about, I mentioned water rights. We have to ask the question, what counts as a navigable water, uh, the territorial water of the United States or a water of the United States, including the territorial seas or a navigable body of water? That's not a house which is built 600 feet from the water. Uh, You just can't make that kind of interpretation. Well, then the question is, if you get the right interpretation, if Chevron gets you to where you are, then we don't want Chevron. What we want to do is to have somebody understand, look, this guy's had a house 600 feet away. Uh, He may be a threat to the water. 
And if so, when the death threat is imminent, we use a common law remedy of injunction. We don't have them inspect the foundation and keep this thing in limbo for 15 years and have an eyesore to boot. So I think it's that way. We're going to see exactly this problem come up. It's interesting uh, because what we did is we have to deal with the current situation with the uh, appropriations that are going to be made under LAPA. And we also had this case that came today, right? The earlier cases on appropriations. Uh, what happens is the way these clauses are worded, it says, I'm going to just read the statute because I think it's important to get a sense. It said, no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're sitting there in the Consumer uh, Protection, whatever, the Fraud Protection Board, and the president has the perfect power to either withhold all the money or to send all the money, and mm-hmm. so what well, the appropriations are being made by the president. They're not being made at all uh, by the Congress. And so there's an intervention which essentially does it. Uh, what happens is if you look at the history, it's reverse legislative history. Justice Kagan and others said, well, this is designed to make sure that there's no one do political influence on these activities. But the whole point of the appropriations clause was to have a political check on the way the executive branch runs. And so what she's saying is that you think this is designed independent. You have basically stated that the purpose is utterly inconsistent with the basic constitutional framework on these cases. And I think the same thing is true with the case like Oprah. I mean, are we going to allow somebody in an agency to decide to impose a tax on somebody else without congressional authorization? I think that these cases are structural, and I think that they require more or less emphatic stuff, and that we leave the stuff on vagueness to cases that are actually cases in which there's some uncertainty as to which way the law runs. Uh, But my own experience is uh, that the ratio of vague cases to clear cases, when you understand the institutional framework, there are many fewer vague cases and many more clear cases, and that when you do the doctrines, you want to start with the notion that most of these cases have something close to a plain meaning, and then you worry about the exceptions. Instead of starting with the view, everything is unclear, and then say, oh my God, we may find one case in a million which is clear. I think you get the wrong emphasis on that. I think that that's the kind of thing that got Justice Gorsuch in real trouble in both stock, where he invented his own meaning by purporting to find vagueness. And I think that what happens is we have to be much more careful and much more confident in the ability of language to do things. Because the moment you sort of go into linguistic skepticism, you're going to have massive delegation and massive political abuse. Richard, that your point right there. And by the way, you're not just arguing, you're not quibbling with me, you're quibbling with James Madison, but I'll send him your best. No, I'm not. I Madison just, was on my side. Uh, he said the police powers are clear and definite, right? Article 44. You know, he was, he was our, not a linguistic skeptic. When, when we used to have our own podcast, we could go on for an hour about this. But, yes, I was we did. Say, <laughs> but I'll say, Richard, we um I'm glad you brought up the CFPB because of course I wanted to bring it up. And I wanted to bring it up in conjunction with the point you made just a few minutes ago about the court needing to really grapple with what's happening inside of the institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as Ali mentioned, we're recording this episode the, the day after the CFPB oral arguments. And when you listen to those oral arguments, you hear justices really grappling with what exactly the CFPB does um, what exactly Congress did when it created the CFPB, really thinking through the operations and the motivations of both of those institutions. Um, I've been looking forward to this case for a long time. I was, you know, this is a, a constitutional issue I was working with, with uh, C. Boyd and Gray, um, you know, more than a decade ago, and, and very interested to hear the justices eventually reach this case, because this is a case where there really isn't much useful judicial precedent there really isn't much executive branch or legislative precedent. I know the Solicitor General's position is that actually there is a lot of precedent here. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's correct. Um, but it's regardless, it's a point where the the just it's a case where the justices really have to think from the ground up based on their understanding of not just the Constitution's text and Dodd-Frank's text, but also just the fundamental institutional workings and institutional purposes of this agency and of Congress. So to the extent that you've you've heard the oral arguments or you've been reading the briefs, I would love to hear both your thoughts on, on the CFPB case. You mentioned, Adam, that, you know, the, the Solicitor General sort of arguing from history in terms of, yes, there is a precedent for this. And I just want to acknowledge in, in much the same way that it was a victory um, uh, that uh, when cases in terms of what the ground is that the, you know, what, what's the, uh, the art of war, right? Taking the field, yeah. right? Is, is the first mm-hmm. agent winning? 
Um, it's it's a victory. It's a victory for originalism, for history and tradition. That 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 was the debate, mm-hmm. right? That is there is there a precedent? And we may disagree, and the sides may disagree about. And I thought Justice Alito did a pretty masterful job. I think he came prepared for that mm-hmm. discussion, shall we say, right? In terms of are these really precedents? Oh, definitely. Um, right. Um, and so I think it's it's worth stopping to acknowledge that, you know, that that and a lot of the amici who are are advocating for um the CFPB argued from the same same point. They were make they were making arguments based on the text and original meaning and et cetera. I think you know, from my from my perspective, um, as somebody who's labored in these fields for a long time, when, whenever my ears hear, oh, it was designed to be outside of politics or immune, <laughs> you know, my 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 antennas go up, right? Because the, <laughs> yeah. right, what I guess what what one person's you know immune from politics is well, but the flip side of that is. The, we're, no accountability, right, in terms of our constitutional uh, structure. So, I think I think you're I think you're very right, Adam. That it's a fascinating case from the standpoint of how the justices will approach, like what 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 did Congress do here? Why did it do it? And you know, Congress. If there's one thing, you know, Congress has the power of the purse. Mm-hmm. No, it does. And that, that seems, that seems clear. And Richard, that gets back to your, your things about, you know, when it's clear, it's, it's clear. Um, so Richard, what, what, Richard, what are your, what are your, what are your thoughts? I, mean, I look, I, as always, our instincts, we sort of travel in parallel paths with respect to this kind of a case. And uh, what I think about this is that in many cases, they're struggling over the wrong questions. They're trying to figure out what big, what kind of cap that you could have here as opposed to what kind of minimum you could have here. Mm-hmm. I think the fundamental question is that this entire system was designed to insulate this agency from all kinds of oversight, uh, from that of the Congress and from that of the courts, because of their peculiar views that you could only get review if it turns out that the Secretary of the Treasury is on the side of that. Uh, all those things go to me. What they wanted to do is they wanted to create an independent dictatorship. And that's exactly the way Elizabeth Warren, who's the champion of this bill, and Richard Cordray, I think it was supposed to be its first thing, they were starting to think about it. This doesn't mean there is, and this is to say, this doesn't mean there's no politics that's involved. It just means that there are a different set of players playing the politics, and they're not the set of players that we want to play who are completely insulated from everybody else and essentially have this power. Uh, if you go back and look at some of the decisions that have been made by this board on relatively close cases, they're just outrageous. The amount of fines that they're prepared to impose for minor violations, the kind of interim it affects as large of other kinds of people. What happens is you don't think of this as a board which is of sage and wise individuals who understand consumer credit. You think of this as an extreme left-wing operation which is trying to insulate itself from the political process and put threats into the thing. Now, you can do this the other way. And, you know, I am very, we, we've talked about Humphrey's executives, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, I have two attitudes about that. One is I'm afraid of a president who's too imperial. Um, fire everybody, do all sorts of terrible things. Right now, I am suing the president of the United States. I don't know if you knew this as a lawyer. I didn't know this. What? I did not know this. Well, but it's a very important case, which is they'd like to keep. Well, there were a whole institutional set of advisory boards that was supposed to be independent and valid to give public information, advice to the president, the Congress, and everybody else. And it had three presidential, six presidential appointments. Uh, each two years, each president gets to appoint two, and they last for three year terms. Every single board in the United States, Joe Biden told all the Trump appointees, I don't care what your terms are. Uh, you are fired as of six o'clock if you don't resign as of five o'clock. And he claimed they're executive branch employees. Well, that's crazy. Uh, they are no more executive branch appointees than are judges, right, who are appointed by the president. They were supposed to have independent. And what he does is exactly what they did here. They said, well, I want people on my advisory boards who share my values. 
That's exactly what you don't want. The advisory boards are supposed to be people who don't share your values. It's supposed to be independent. Just the way uh, what we do is we want to insulate this thing from politics. That's crazy. What we want to do is subject it to basically congressional oversight, the way the original scheme goes. And so I see an immense amount of lawlessness taking place on these kinds of areas. The district court opinion by a Trump judge was absolutely horrific in terms of the way it just simply did not understand any of the particular issues. It said, of course, these things are at will appointments. Why is that? Well, if you're at will appointments, why do you say that the terms last for three years each? Because now you could always fire the people appointed by your predecessor in office. This was a classic, very well thought out scheme to have rotation in power so as to give a check against excessive power. And that, of course, was a Roman theme. And it was also very much a theme of checks and balances in Madison, right? Yeah. And so forth. And what happened just complete overshot of this kind of stuff. And what's so frightening about it is the lawless attitude by the president. He praises himself. There's not the slightest bit of doubt in his mind. No other president has done this to any advisory board for over 50 years. There was one attempt by Reagan to do, Reagan to do this on the civil rights stuff, and they entrenched the scheme in legislation. So what we do now is the real danger we have is this massive form of over preemption taking place under these ghastly circumstances, and they win in court. I mean, litigating against presidents is one of the most painful things in the world because, you know, the entire deck is snacked against you. Uh, To give you another illustration, all the stuff about Collins and Yellen, the real issue in that case was massive theft. And they managed to talk about a ditzy little separation. This is the uh, FHFA case, the uh, the executive Uh, party. The whole Constitution, that thing, was designed to create bias. What they did is they staffed the independent agency with employees from the Treasury, and then they two of them had to negotiate, and they treated it as though it was a fair arm's length deal. It was a terrible opinion by Justice Alito on this. Uh, So, I mean, when I'm talking about things that are wrong in the administration, these are not little nits that you're talking about. These are just blatant overreaches that take place. And in many cases, it's individual rights that get wiped out. And you have the concordance of Republicans, Democrats, senators, and so forth, which is why the separation of powers will not work when there's a violation of rights which everybody in the government is willing to cheer on. That's what courts are supposed to do, to prevent unanimous legislations from doing unconstitutional things. I don't want to get too far past the CFPB point to bring it back to one last thing. Um, I like Justice Alito's questions a lot. Um, He asked all all the questions I I was hoping justices would ask, uh, but one. There's one question I wish had been asked. You know, as as a CFPB watcher from the start, I always kept an eye out for all the times that the CFPB would sort of brag that it that its money was non-appropriated. And they said this over and over again every year in their financial reports and their public statements, they would always say we are a non-appropriated agency. Um, and and at oral argument yesterday, you would never know that because the Solicitor General kept referring to Dodd-Frank, sort of assume, taking for granted that Dodd-Frank itself was the appropriation statute. Um, I, I wish... One of the justices would have um, would have would have known about that other old the, the old track record and brought it up. Um, but hey, uh, you know you can't you can't always uh, get what you want. And there's nothing more pathetic than a think tanker shouting at his car stereo, uh, asking the justices <laughs> to ask the question that the think tanker wishes these uh, Supreme Court justices would act. So I digress. I want to ask two more questions before we go. One for each of you. Um, and Richard, I'll start with you. Um, as you said, sometimes the court doesn't always um, go uh, where you think it ought to go. And I can think of two specific examples. One you've alluded to a few times. It's Ali's case, uh, the oil states case yeah. um, regarding, uh, well, I'll let you describe what the case is about. But the second, and this just happened um, days ago, was the court uh, de- denied cert in the latest challenge to the New York uh, City rent stabilization law. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that cert denial, too. You can talk about Basically, it, which, which, I mean, either I, of those cases in either order. Okay, I hope that we don't run out of time. <laughs> um, first of all, let me salute uh, a lawyer, Hope. She wrote a series of very masterful briefs in that case. And it turns out that the issue is an extremely important one for separation of power. In, in which case is this? This, this is, is the oil states. Oil states, yeah. So what oil, what happens is we have introduced by legislation a, a patent appeal board. And what it purports to do is not only make initial determinations of 
uh, validity and then send them out into the world. But it says after it sends them back into the world, if the litigant in this case, like the green energy company, wants to go back before the PTO in order to uh, litigate its particular case, it can ask it to stop the judicial proceedings and bring it into itself and essentially then basically use what I would call just a kangaroo court system to do it. Uh, so what happens is the judges are not appointed by rotation. They're appointed with an eye from the chief as to what he wants. It turns out if the first panel doesn't rule his way, he could add two other judges to the panel. And when that doesn't work, he puts himself on the panel in order to decide the issue. This is a judicial travesty which calls for a due process analysis. And what they did was they did a separation of powers analysis on the very elusive question of what counts as a public right. And on this question, Justice Thomas completely mangled the legal history. Uh, we started constantly, we talked about it, uh, circumvention devices of judicial limitations. One of the themes we're at. Well, Article I court started exactly that way. What happened is you had disputes in the customs office, which was the major revenue source in the early part of the 19th century. And you have agents all over the country making these decisions. And somebody says there's no consistency between them. So you appoint the guy who's a kind of an overseer and a check, and they start doing these things. And after a while, that becomes a separate office, and it looks like a court, because that's exactly the way it functions. The mm -hmm. people inside the agency want to make sure that it's not going to be political all the way up and down. Uh, so what you do is you have this, and it doesn't meet any of the standards for an Article Three court. Uh, so you get the situation in Hoboken and, and Murray's Lassie and so forth, and you have a real crook. He stole a lot of money, and they were trying to get him, and the objection comes, it's not an Article Three court. And what they do is they say, well, if a certain case is involving public rights, you don't need an Article Three court. You look at the Constitution to see where it is in Article Three that you have a separation for public rights, can't find it at all. But the original definition was, uh, this is money owing to the government. And what happens is they have this appellate procedure. It's been going on for 50 years. It was never challenged. We don't want to challenge it now, so we create the exception. Uh, you go then through the later cases, and it's pretty clear they kept to that exception. And so that major grants would be the land on the one hand, or patents on the other hand, were always final grants that could only be set aside for cause in a judicial setting. And the key case on this is, I think it's McCormick is probably the best case that summarizes it all from 1898, utterly unambiguous. And Justice Thomas comes along and he says, well, we've seen all these cases. A public right involves any time where you create a right by statute. Well, at this particular point, the entire system is shot to hell. Nobody ever meant that at the time. And so people start coming, well, we have criminal statutes. Does that mean we could get rid of judicial proceeding? If we say Congress says uh, it must be followed. And so what you do is you essentially use an unconstitutional conditions doctrine to strip the courts of power. We made all these arguments. I made them in several amicus things. Allison made them. You did. I should say you did. A, you, didn't you do an amicus brief with my uh, my Scalia law colleague, uh, Professor Adam Mossoff? I case? most certainly did. I yep. mean, Adam is my patent student yep. and so forth. I mean... Uh, I didn't have him for Roman law, which I regret, uh, but he was an amazing student and, you know, as knowledgeable as anybody alive on this stuff. Well, I thought it was just an absolute travesty. And I, I think that I don't think Allison should speak because she got it all right. Uh, she said it. Um, the second case is every bit as crazy. Um, New York rent control laws were introduced after World War One, not during World War One, after in a case called Block v. Hearst. And it was justified as an emergency measure to take care of the massive influx of people into the District of Columbia. It was not a border commission. It simply said the historical rents are the ones that have to apply going forward for the next two years. And it's a perturbation on the market. And in fact, you don't need that. What happens is if you have an influx, you'll get people renting out rooms in their garage and stuff like that, and you'll slowly readjust supply. They did it for two years in a case called Chaselton. Uh, Justice Holmes, who wrote the original opinion, said, the emergency's over. You can't do the rent control anymore. But by the time you get through New York State, we now have a new definition of emergency, which is a shortage mm -hmm. created by the statute itself. And so if you basically keep rents at a very low rate, you always have very low vacancy rates, so you always have an emergency. And the New York courts have accepted that. And then with this current regime, the new statute, they add more and more restrictions to it. And the entire real estate industry is in a complete panic. I wrote a brief in that case, too, as an advocate, um, trying to explain what was wrong. And there were concerted efforts 
The scheme is utterly outrageous. So in New York, if you want to put a park apartment back on the housing market, which was destabilized, the new provision says, oh, once you rent it out for this, that becomes a new rent stabilization level. So every apartment in New York City gets stabilized. And somebody says, you got to look at this, the Supreme Court. And yeah. they don't. The problem with the Supreme Court, in one sense, is they're all administrative law buffs. You look at them with the possible exception, possible, not complete, of Justice Gorsuch. None of them have private law inclinations or training. And so when you see this kind of massive thing take place, they turn it down. What does it lead me to believe is they will continue to take property courses, cases on such things. Did you get sufficient notice in these particular situations? Was it a complete or a partial taking? But they're never going to answer the fundamental question. How do you deal with regulatory takings? Because of one thing, there was an absurd sentence. I I, I choose my word carefully. Uh, Justice O'Connor, in dealing with a case called Yee, she says, well, we're not dealing with physical appropriation. We're dealing with the control of use by people who are sitting in an apartment whom you can't evict. And so for the purposes of the Constitution, a tenant is not in possession of the property in question. And if you think this is the way in which language allows this to take place, Adam, this is a classic illustration where it's delusional. Uh, but it's convenient. And so what we do is we see a major catastrophe taking place in rental markets, a hopeless court in New York State, an utterly hopeless Second Circuit. I mean, these are not stooges. Guido Calabresi signed on to that teacher. What was he thinking? Well, I don't want to ask him because I'll just get annoyed. So I'll stop it back. Well, Al- Ali, I'm not going to ask you to, to relitigate oil states. I'm going to ask you a <laughs> Um, I, of course, I'd love, I'd love to hear any sort of closing big picture thoughts you have. But since, you know, the Gray Center is an academic research center at Scalia Law, I'm always curious to think uh, and hear, think about and hear lawyers talk about the connection between legal scholarship and actual Supreme Court practice. So love any closing thoughts for you, but particularly thinking through what, what's the relationship between scholarship and, and the work of lawyers and the work of judges today? Well, that's a that's a really that's a great question. I think particularly when you're looking at something like separation of powers or or due process, it's sort of the marriage of the very esoteric, right? But also the incredibly practical, right? And what what are the impact of these kind of big picture ideas on on individuals? And I'm 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 often just reminded that, you know, with separation of power in particular, you know, it's structural, it's architecture, and it's beautiful in and of itself, what the founders created. Um, But you can't lose sight of the fact that the purpose of this beautiful building um, was to protect individual liberty, Mm -hmm. right? That was the goal. And I think, um, I, I think a discussion, I think often, um, you know, although it doesn't feel like a discussion uh, sometimes in, at oral arguments, but it, I think there it, the, the discussion sort of between advocates and judges that goes on at argument, kind of testing ideas, floating things, seeing, seeing the reaction, um, that's kind of how I think of the academy as well, right? Like the, the academy mm-hmm. when it's functioning at its highest and best, right, puts big picture ideas out there that those of us advocating right, on behalf of individuals and in particular cases, then it gives us an opportunity to look at that and say, well, how can I use that to help make something I'm arguing clear or arguing within um, a larger context and to make sense of it? And may, maybe I can only like move, you know, move move the needle a little bit, um, but at least, at least I have a better sense of the direction in which it needs to go. And I just, I think that's vitally important. And the work that you're doing is vitally important to the project. Yes. Well, thanks, Allie. And I know you're I know you're a busy lawyer. So, Allie, thank you so much for joining <laughs> yeah, us. Yeah, I can today. stay around and talk forever, right? <laughs> I don't this becomes me. <laughs> yeah. And Richard, thanks to you too for joining the episode today. Yes, I'm also a busy man. You and are. I basically become unfortunately a litigator. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> my old age. Yeah. Well, and I should say I'm always glad to to reconnect uh professors and and their students this has been a fun yes. university of chicago reunion with these two yes it is and say um, hello to your other beloved husband yeah. Jim but now, <laughs> real my student he was also my student well he, hold on uh, real quick before we turn off the mics on this i just want to say um 
Uh, if you've hated this episode, if you're out there listening to this and you spent the last hour or so shouting at your dashboard uh, or shouting uh, at your iPhone mm-hmm. about the about the, the Richard and Allie's points today, stay tuned. Please join <laughs> us for the accompanying episode where we're going to be joined by two guests who probably share a lot of your views. And oh, by the way, if you spent the last hour loving every minute of this episode and agreeing <laughs> with everything that's been said, then you too, please tune into the next episode where you're going to hear some very different viewpoints. Some of the most important work we do here at the Great Center is bringing around the table people that disagree with each other uh, to really think through these things together. And today's episode is one half of that kind of broader uh, conversation. So we always say at the end, but especially for this episode, please join us for the next episode of Gray Matters. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Ad Law Center. 